0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Aristotelian Society. um, Tonight's uh, talk is by Leah Upi from the LSC, Department of Government. And Leah is going to talk to us about um, uh, the unity of nature and the unity of reason, revisiting Kant's arguments on systematicity. So, Leah, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure and honor to be here. My paper is about the relationship between theoretical and practical reason in Kant, but I narrow it down to Kant's first critique. I narrow it down even further to something called the Appendix to the Transcendental Dialectic of the First Critique. And my aim is to explore Kant's claims about the unity of reason in connection to the discussion of ideas that Kant presents in the Appendix. So, one of the most perplexing features of the defense of the unity of reason in the first critique is in fact the treatment of the function of ideas in the section on the appendix. This section is often read as a precursor to Kant's analysis of reflective judgment in the critique of judgment and for that reason they have often been read in connection to the critique of judgment and have generated a lot of interpretive controversies. So there are several controversies that my paper some. ...mentions and are somewhat in the background of what I'm going to discuss... ...although what I say in the paper is only tangentially related to these controversies... ...it sort of sheds light on them but doesn't actually tackle them directly. So first of all there is a kind of controversy about the sort of experience... ...that the ideas of reason help to systematise. The appendix is the part of the first critique... ...where Kant talks about the systematic unifying role of the ideas of reason... And there's two readings here. On a weaker reading, the role of ideas is to support reason in the activity of systematizing the empirical laws of nature. There's a stronger reason on which uh, the ideas of reason are essential to the very conception of an empirical law. So not just systematize the laws that we have come up with, but in fact, they are essential to the very concept of a law as opposed to a contingent generalization. There's another controversy about the kind of presupposition of the systematic unity of nature on which this kind of discussion of ideas relies. Kant often hints at the systematicity of nature as a necessary presupposition for the kind of inquiry that ideas of reason help facilitate. But in fact, the status of ideas in supporting this presupposition and their relationship to the systematicity of nature is also unclear. So there's a weaker reading on which the role of ideas of reason is only methodological, and the pure concepts of reason, this is the other term that Kant uses for ideas, are uh, simply required to project a kind of hypothetical unity necessary to us unifying and rendering coherent the activity of scientific investigation. There's a stronger reading on which the kind of unity the ideas of reason project is not just methodological, but actually presupposes a teleological arrangement of nature itself. It's the second controversy about the status of ideas. Finally, um, or thirdly, there is a controversy about the kinds of principles on which the use of ideas relies. Kant mentions the necessity for principles. And on one, again, weaker reading, the kinds of principles are simply logical principles required, again, to unify the... um, empirical laws of nature, so there are principles of homogeneity, specificity, and continuity that we usually invoke in philosophy of science in thinking about how we render coherent. There's a stronger reading on which these logical principles are themselves grounded on a transcendental principle, Uh, and I'm going to say more about the status of this transcendental principle and what this requires in Kant's discussion. Finally, there is a kind of controversy about the necessity of the transcendental principle. So if we assume that logical principles rest on a transcendental principle and the transcendental principle is necessary for reason in its heuristic use, then what kind of necessity is at stake here? So on one reading, this necessity is a kind of theoretical necessity, which is required for the speculative use of of reason. And in another reading, this is eminently practical. So, as I said, this paper touches on all of these controversies, although it doesn't engage with either one of them directly. Instead, what it engages with is a much less discussed um, idea, and that is uh, another sort of much less discussed source of controversy. And that is the problem of the transcendental deduction of ideas in the appendix. So I'm going to begin the paper by explaining first what kind of deduction we are talking about, and then I'll say something about the most common responses to the dilemma that is presented when talking about the deduction. Then I'll turn to an alternative interpretation of the problem, that's the heart of my paper, which tries to explain Kant's difficulties in coming up with the deduction of transcendental ideas in light of a tension between two concepts of purposiveness. And again, I'll say much more about either one of them in a minute. One is a concept of purposiveness understood as practical, and so what I call purposiveness as normativity, and the other one is a different kind of purposiveness or conformity to ends that is associated to a much more traditional metaphysical reading of purposiveness, and that's to say purposiveness as design. So I'll say that while uh, the understanding of purposiveness as normativity is grounded on the kind of practical demands of reason... Uh, and on the kind of teleological structure that the practical demands of reason have. On the other hand, uh, purposiveness as design is a much more loaded metaphysical concept, is one that Kant takes from the metaphysical tradition, and uh, that discusses in the first critique as well, and with which doesn't quite quite settle accounts, or that's what I'm trying to suggest. So, as I'll say, as I try to show... The critique of pure reason tries to ground the project of the unity of reason in a concept of purposiveness as design. And this outcome, I'm going to suggest towards the end of my paper, challenges not just Kant's unifying project, which is supposed to serve to begin with, but in fact the success of the entire critical enterprise. So I'm going to try and explain how this whole thing unfolds in the first critique, what Kant's difficulties are and what this trade-off and uh, discussion of these two concepts of purposiveness and design involves. So let me start first with the problem of the deduction of transcendental ideas as it appears in this section of the first critique. Kant says that we can't have, we can't use concepts a priori without having a transcendental deduction of them. And he also uses and deploys, invokes the concept of deduction in this section of the first critique in relationship to the justification of the use of ideas of reason, which are in turn necessary to the project of unifying of empirical laws of nature in the appendix. So Kant says that if ideas are to have the least objective validity, even if it's an only indeterminate validity, they should uh, at least have a deduction of them. A deduction of them, he says, must definitely be possible. Now, authors who um, discuss Kant's concept of deduction often link this understanding of deduction to the logical way in which we often think about what deduction is. So inferences, inferential reason, uh, applying, sort of thinking about known valid premises and coming up with a necessarily valid conclusion And this is actually not the kind of deduction that Kant has in mind, either in the first critique or in any of his other successive writings, when he speaks about deduction. What he has in mind instead is legal literature that was very prominent in the 17th and 18th century, and a whole body of work known as deduction writings. Now, deduction writings were usually taken up by lawyers, and their purpose was to discuss conflicted territorial claims uh, in the Holy Roman Empire and to discuss conflicts between different jurisdictions of different princes and to come up with the justification of the validity of the claims that these uh, princes or whoever monarchs came up with in the context of the form of the Holy Roman Empire. So the idea of the deduction writings was to explore the claim that a de facto ruler of a particular territory made on that territory to explore why that territory might have been contested and to come up with a justification starting from the kind of de facto claim to a de jure justification of why that territorial claim might have been uh, grounded. So Kant, uh, when he writes about deduction, that's exactly what he has in mind. And the use of territorial metaphors, both in the first critique and in other writings of Kant, suggests that this is the use of the concept of deduction that he's interested in. He's interested, in other words, in claims of reason to a certain, what he calls, territory of experience that are contested and on which there are different conflicting interpretations. And he's interested in starting from the kind of de facto claim of reason to these territories to the then de jure discussion of the validity of these claims. So um, Kant suggested the advocate of reason in the whole critical project must prove to both the skeptic and the dogmatic that certain claims of reason are uh, justified And the rule of certain concepts of reason over a certain territory of experience is itself valid. And so only then, Kant suggests, will the the skeptic on the one hand and the dogmatic on the other understand that they have no claim for their assertions. And so the critique will show us that the reason has to, on the one hand, renounce some of its exaggerated territorial pretensions, Kant says, and on the other hand, show us and draw back within the boundaries of its proper legitimate use. So it's in this context that we should understand the function of the ideas of reason in the systematic projects of the first critique. Kant's goal is to show how the use of the ideas of reason could be justified, what the purpose, what the role of systematicity is in that regard, and why there is a kind of necessary claim to systematicity, and why that claim is further justified. And that, Kant suggests, again, in this part of the critique, basically completes the entire business of the critique. So the critique of pure reason is not finished with the analytic, it's not finished with the um, dialectic, it's not finished with the doctrine of method, it's in fact, again, being pursued, the project of unifying of reason, in these last pages of the first um, critique that I'm interested in. (coughs) Now... So far, so good. The only problem is that, um, on the one hand, Kant says that the deduction of transcendental ideas must be necessary and must be justified. On the other hand, when he discusses the hypothetical use of the ideas of reason in the appendix, he says that a deduction of these concepts must be ruled out. And in fact, he says, and I quote, this kind of deduction is always impossible in regard to ideas. So that's where the puzzle is. Why does Kant first rule out a deduction of ideas, that's what he says in the first part of the appendix, and then go on to provide it and say, well, it's necessary, so we must have it, and so this is now the deduction that I'm giving you. And what exactly does the deduction add to the analysis of the role of ideas in the systematic organization of experience that Kant has discussed in this section of the critique? So the scholarship here, the the two passages that I've referred are very puzzling, obviously, because there is a straight contradiction. First Kant says there is no deduction, and then he says, here, I'm going to give you a deduction. And so the scholarship is, again, very divided on how to interpret these passages. So some people ignore the problem of deduction altogether, and they proceed as if there was no deduction and as if Kant was not even trying to provide it in this section. Or there is a more charitable reading that is distinguished in a kind of weaker version and a stronger version. So in the weaker explanation, basically the deduction is not a big deal. And the reason it's not a big deal, and that Kant provides it, is that the idea of systematicity of nature on which the hypothetical use of reason relies in this part of the first critique, is in fact only, uh, this goes back to the first interpretation, the first controversy I was referring to earlier, is only of heuristic methodological use it has no bearing on how the categories of the understanding are applied to create empirical concepts. So it says, well look, Kant has a hypothetical use of reason, so the ideas of reason are necessary to the hypothetical use of reason, and therefore he must provide a deduction, so the deduction is not a problem. The problem with this interpretation is that it solves the problem of deduction only by denying that there is a problem in the first place. So, if the deduction is not a big deal, as the weaker reading suggests, then why was Kant so concerned to say, well, it's impossible to have a deduction? So, this takes us to another alternative interpretation, which says, well, actually, there is a deduction, and there's a stronger reading for why the deduction is necessary. And this, uh, the proponents and scholars who have engaged with the second interpretation have tried to link these claims to a debate about the defense of the unity of reason, and the assertion of the supremacy of practical reason. And so, in this second interpretation, the demand for systematicity in nature comes from the nature of our reason, and it's expressive of the unity of reason. But since the demand for systematicity is also a prescription, it tells us what we ought to look at the world like. Uh, it takes the form of a, what it might be to follow a maxim for Kant in a practical sense. Reason ought to presuppose the systematicity of nature if it is to act consistently with itself. So basically, this reading, which links the demand for systematicity to a kind of practical demand, grounded on a sort of practical imperative for Kant, seems to have the advantage of explaining why it's apparently contradictory uh, and why there is apparently an oscillation between a kind of subjective reading of the role of ideas, which is limited, as I said, to emphasising their heuristic role, and an objective reading, which demands that the logical use of reason be grounded on a transcendental principle. So it's what these authors usually suggest is that Kant argues that we must assume a morally purposive unity for the sake of our moral ends. That's practical reason. And if we're interested in theoretical unity and the systematicity of reason from a theoretical perspective, we must or we ought to, again, this must takes a practical form, assume natural purposiveness for the sake of advancing the kind of imperative to look for cognitive unity, which is at the heart of the theoretical use of reason in the first critique. Now, the problem with this reading is, uh, this is the main problem with this reading, is that the concept of a practical imperative has no place in the first critique. There is a lot of talk in the first critique and also in the pre-critical writings about practical demands or needs. And there are references to interests of reason for the sake of which reason must seek systematic unity. But there is actually no autonomous domain in which the principles of practical reason apply in the first critique. And reason makes no practical laws that it imposes on the world. There is nowhere in the first critique where Kant discusses the concept of a practical law that practical reason imposes. There's also no references to the latter doctrine of the categorical imperative, ...or of transcendental freedom as necessary to solve some of the tensions that we might find in the deduction of ideas. So it seems to me that uh, the proponents of this practical reading of the deduction... ...who try to solve the problem by saying, well, look, it might seem contradictory... ...but actually it only looks contradictory because on the one hand we're thinking about theoretical reason... ...and on the other hand we have to take into account the practical nature of the demand for systematic uh, unity, read Kant backwards. And so they project something that we only find in the latter Kant to solve the problem that appears in the first critique. And so the remedy, I think, is too easy a remedy because it's not really textually grounded. So what I'm um, going to suggest is, in a way, just like the weaker readings of this section of, of the role of ideas in the first critique, the stronger interpretations only solve this problem of inconsistency in the transcendental deduction of ideas, again, by denying that there is a problem in the first place, by denying that there is an inconsistency. But it seems to me that if Kant wanted to resort to reasons practical use, to justify the deduction of transcendental ideas, then why did he simply say, didn't say that he wanted to refer to that practical use? And again, why did he say that the deduction was impossible? Uh, If we say that there is a practical nature to the demand, then the demand must not be impossible. In fact, it's a necessary one. So the key to the answer, I think, is basically in the ambiguous status of the notion of purposiveness in nature on which the transcendental use of ideas relies and that is necessary for the deduction of ideas in the first critique. And so I'm going to, to try and suggest that for all of Kant's best efforts, he actually is unable to solve this tension between these two different understandings of purposiveness, even though they both are in the background of what Kant is trying to do in thinking about the transcendental deduction. So to see why both the weaker and the stronger reading of the deduction miss the mark in settling Kant's ambiguities about the problem, it's important to think about the problem of deduction as a development of the problem of the hypothetical use of reason in the appendix. So reason's hypothetical use illustrates the necessity of subsuming under a unitary idea of reason the manifold of empirical cognitions. And this idea in turn reflects a kind of problematic universal which cannot be given in advance, but which must be presupposed for the purpose of reason's complete unity and for the purpose of its um, advancing theoretical inquiry in a systematic way. So what Kant does is by starting from the logical application of the pure concepts of reason to the empirical laws of nature, something that I'm not going to discuss in this paper, Kant raises the problem of a possible foundation of the logical principles of scientific inquiry, so the principles of continuity, homogeneity, and so on, in a possible transcendental principle which presupposes the systematic unity of nature And it's a kind of principle that Kant only mentions and remains in the background of the appendix, so transcendental, but the full characteristics of it are never really specified. So what we are told is that the principle has a kind of inherent link to the postulate for the systematic unity of nature. But we're not given any further instruction on how we ought to understand these principles and especially how this principle of purposiveness relates to the assumption about purposiveness in nature that Kant also invokes. He says that the principle has to do with the um, basically understanding of how, with the analysis of how the understanding itself is applied to concepts. And this is what often proponents of the weaker reading that I referred to earlier about how we should understand experience in the light of Kant's claims on the appendix tend to brush off by saying that, well, basically, the justification of a transcendental principle is just a complement to Kant's discussion of logical principles, which really does the groundwork in explaining how reason relates to understanding in this part of the first critique. But it seems to me that this interpretation, which says, well, the transcendental principle is only a complement to what Kant does when he tries to link the use of reason to the use of understanding, actually misses what is at stake in the claim that a deduction of transcendental ideas must, after all, be necessary. So what Kant wants to do when he says that we must have a deduction of transcendental ideas is to justify the transition from the logical principle that we deploy in thinking about nature as a systematic whole to the transcendental principle of systematicity on nature, of nature, which is necessary to ground this logical principles. And the idea of a deduction and the necessity of a deduction is to precisely supply the link, to explain why this link is necessary and why it's justified. Remember, to kind of settle the claims of reason with regard to the territory of experience. So the target here is just a transition from a hypothetical, regulative use of ideas to their transcendental foundation as prerequisites of a coherent experience in general. So again, here I'm citing with those who see more in the appendix to the transcendental dialectic being done than just saying, just explaining the hypothetical use of reason, and instead see the role of reason as necessary to also ground the application of understanding to concepts in general. So, um, basically, it seems to me that if the idea of systematic unity of nature is grounded on a transcendental principle of reason, which also appears to be objectively necessary, otherwise there would be no problem of deduction. If it wasn't objectively necessary, we wouldn't raise the question of having a deduction of it. The role of ideas goes far beyond that of orienting the empirical use of the understanding and towards an attempt to build a greater systematic unity. And so it seems to me that in this case, ideas have their own distinctive form of universality. necessity which is of course different from the universality and necessity of the concepts of the concept of the understanding but is however indispensable to the application of the categories of the understanding to empirical manifestations so this is where the analogy with the third critique begins to appear and that's where many commentators have noted that the function that ideas perform in this part of the appendix to the transcendental dialectic is very similar to the role that the transcendental principle of purposiveness performs in the critique of judgment. And that's where the critique, the scholarship, usually goes on to just show the parallels between these two uses of the principle of purposiveness. What I'm going to do is, instead of showing the analogies between how the appendix and the critique of judgment more or less talk about the same thing when they explain the relationship between the application of the concept of systematic unity and the relationship to a transcendental principle of purposiveness, in nature, I'd rather like to emphasize the differences between these two texts. So in the the third critique, as many people know, the transcendental principle of purposiveness is at the basis of the capacity for reflexive judgment, and it enables the systematization of the empirical laws of nature. In terms of the sort of unity, and this is a Kant quote, that they would have, so the empirical laws of nature would have, if an understanding, even if not ours, had given them for the sake of our faculty of cognition in order to make possible a system of experience in accordance with particular laws of nature. In other words, when we think about the purposiveness of nature, we think about a kind of uh, conformity to ends that a higher understanding, different from others, would have brought together in the world for the sake of our facility in engaging with the empirical world. Notice, however, that in the third critique, when Kant introduces this transcendental principle that is necessary to the reflexive use of judgment, he says that uh, the idea is far from being objectively valid and necessary. In other words, even if we presuppose that nature is teleologically oriented or that there is purposiveness in nature, and even if we think about the analogy with higher intelligence, it doesn't mean that the world is actually like that. Uh, We just think about it for um, the facility of our concept of Judgment. This is a kind of principle that the capacity of judgment adopts as a law for regulating its own use and for reflecting on a particular kind of causality, which is inspired by the kind of causality that is reflected in the practical use of reason. And this, in the third critique, is where this reading that refers to the practical demands of reason is more legitimized than in the first critique. So basically, in the third critique, in talking about the relationship between systematicity of nature and the principle of purposiveness, Kant deploys a notion of purposiveness as normativity. He asks what it would be like to judge objects in a certain way and to provide a set of criteria grounded on an analogy with the way in which our reason operates in the practical domain. So to judge objects as purposive on this account is basically to ask what they would be if they had to conform to a certain number of normative properties, to ask how the object is meant to be. But on this reading, purposiveness is entirely separate from the idea of purposiveness as design. So we look at how practical reason operates in the practical domain, how it judges things, how it thinks about how something ought to be, and it applies that very same way of thinking to then its reflection in the theoretical domain. And so we don't need the idea of purposiveness of design in order to be able to think about purposiveness of normativity because we think about the analogy with how our own practical reason operates. So, in the Critique of Pure Reason, and this is where the difference is interesting, Kant hints at the same principle, the principle of purposiveness, to explain the possibility of reflecting on systematic unity <coughs> for the purpose of rational systematization. Remember, I said this is at the basis of Kant's unifying attempts in the appendix. Kant never mentions the principle of purposiveness explicitly by words, but he keeps talking about the transcendental principle of the systematic unity of nature or the transcendental principle of ends in nature arranged in a certain way. And he also doesn't provide a separate deduction of the use of this principle as a principle necessary to our reflection. Rather, the deduction of the same kind of thing that the principle does in the third critique is bound up in the first critique with the ambiguous deduction of ideas, as I have explained earlier. So basically, his analysis in the first critique is limited to the account of uh, the role of the unitary idea of the system as the basis of the hypothetical use of reason and is linked to the transcendental deduction of the ideas of reason. So, why does Kant need this assumption of systematic unity and why is it bound up with the deduction of transcendental ideas? To help make sense of this claim, we might want to refer to a shorter essay on what is orientation in thinking, which Kant writes around about the same time as the first critique, and where he explains that the demand for systematic unity of nature is connected to something that he calls the rights of reason's need as a subjective ground for presupposing and assuming something which reason may not presume to know through objective grounding and which is necessary for orienting itself in thinking. So this is a very curious right, even if you think about it just the formulation. The right of a need is a curious formulation. But it's the kind of right that for Kant justifies the advancement in the immeasurable space of the supersensible, which Kant says is for us filled with dark night, and is grounded on a need not only to pose the concept of the unlimited as the ground of the concepts of all limited beings, but also goes as far as the presupposition of its existence. So not only do we make a kind of theoretical claim to complete unity of knowledge, but we also presuppose something that's related to the existence of that presupposition. So, reasons right to postulate the concept of the unlimited as the ground of all concepts of limited beings is based on an unavoidable tendency, Kant wants to suggest, to reflect on the first causes of all things, so to get to the ground of everything. And in particular, the order of ends, which is actually present in the world, leads us to postulate the existence of such a purposive world. So we just observe the connection between things in the world and we observe that there is a kind of connection in conformity to ends. And on the basis of a theoretical need to judge about the causes of everything contingent, we also then presuppose that this connection is effectively there. So again, Kant's argument in the in the short essay I was just referring to, what is orientation in thinking, is very similar to the first critique. So what Kant says is that we must abstract from all limiting conditions of the idea of the whole so as to make possible the systematic unity of the manifold. And it's only through this idea of unity that the greatest possible empirical use of reason is guaranteed and all combinations are seen, and I quote, as if they were ordained by a highest reason, of which our reason is only a weak copy. So when we refer to such a being, Kant claims, we refer to nothing else but the rational concept of God. So what is bound up with the transcendental deduction of ideas and the claim that there is necessity necessity of systematic unity is first the observation that we have a need to come up with a concept of systematic unity, then the idea that, if we have a need for such concepts, it must be the case that nature is purposively arranged. If we observe nature to be purposively arranged, then we must also reflect about something that is at the basis of this purposive arrangement, and that is idea of an intelligence that is highest and higher than others and operates in analogy with others, but that contains the kind of unconditioned ground of all conditions, Kant says. So notice again that Kant's effort here is very different from the kind of effort that takes place in the third critique. And that's also where I want to suggest this is where one sees the difference between first the use of purposiveness as normativity, as we find it in the third critique in reference to the practical use of reason, and a concept of purposiveness as design, as I'm trying to indicate, begins to emerge from these pages when when Kant tries to justify the ideas of reason. So instead of explaining how reason can autonomously conceive of a purposive connection of all things given its own standard of how things ought to be, so that's purposiveness as normativity, which we find in the third critique, what Kant does in the first critique is to help himself to the transcendental deduction of ideas to strengthen the link between the conformity to ends and the idea of a supreme reason that is as its basis. And that's what I suggested, the concept of purposiveness as design. So first we observe purposiveness in nature and then we come up with the concept of a necessary being that is at the foundation of this. So the principle of conformity to ends demands here that the systematic unity, I quote, be presupposed absolutely as a unity of nature. So demand for unity of reason requires a demand for unity in nature, Kant says. And that is recognized as, and I quote again from the first critique, following from the very essence of things. Now, when Kant turns to this very question, the relationship between the claim of unity of reason and the claim to unity of nature in the third critique, what he does is to provide an argument that is very different from the one that we have just seen, where we come up with the idea of a supreme intelligence to justify the link. He says, and I quote, We cannot ascribe to the products of nature anything like a relation of nature in them to ends. We can only use this concept in order to reflect on the connection of appearances in accordance with empirical laws. So the rationale again for this link is provided by by the analogy between human understanding and reason's practical agency and practical capacity to pose ends in the world And this capacity for posing normative ends is basically the foundation in the third critique of the presupposition of um, teleology in nature that is necessary to the use of the reflective concept of judgment. So Kant says basically in the third critique, we don't actually observe nature really being teleologically oriented. We observe practical reason operating in accordance to ends. And this conception of purposiveness as normativity we then apply to our analysis of nature. And Kant actually cautions us that even if we were capable of having an empirical overview of the whole system, as if it, uh, as long as it concerns mere nature, this, Kant says, even if we knew all the reasons for all the teleological connections, could never bring us beyond nature to the ends of the existence itself. In other words, to the idea of a necessary being, and thereby, again, I quote, to the determinate concept of that higher intelligence. So remember, on the one case, Kant said... The concept of a higher intelligence we find in the very essence of things. And in the second case, in the third critique, he says that even if we had insight into how every law in nature is actually arranged, we would never have insight into the foundation of all these laws and so into the concept of God. So in the critique of pure reason, the concept of purposiveness doesn't precede, but rather follow the postulate of an idea of reason as the fundamental ground of the purposiveness of nature. So the deduction of its validity, the deduction of the concept of purposiveness is therefore completely inverted. So Kant here too argues that the greatest systematic unity and therefore also purposive unity is the school and even the ground of the possibility of the greatest use of human reason. And here too he suggests that since this idea of systematic unity is inseparably bound with the essence of our reason, it is also legislative for us. And therefore he says it's very natural for us to assume a corresponding legislative reason from which all systematic unity of nature as the object of our reason is to be derived. But what is the evidence for the claim in the first critique? Remember, in the third critique, the evidence is that this is how practical reason operates. And so the evidence is purposiveness as normativity. And as, as I said. Now, one might, be, might, one might want to argue that in the first critique as well, it's the practical legislation of reason that gives us the ends, that reason we ought to pursue, that takes us to this account but how would that be further justified? In the first critique, there is nothing to suggest that practical reason is normative, in the sense that it's required to come up with the concept of purposiveness as normativity, which is distinguished by purposiveness as design. And it's precisely the absence of this concept which opens a gap I want to suggest in Kant's reasoning. And it's a gap that we can only fully expose if we continue to explore the kind of discontinuity between the perspective of the first critique that I've just been mentioning and that of the third critique, when it comes to the relationship between the systematic unity of nature on the one hand and its relation to the rational idea of God in the other. So in the third critique, again, Kant says explicitly that however far we go from the apparent purposiveness of all things natural, we can never ground a physical theology. In other words, a justification of the concept of higher intelligence. What we find is rather, Kant says, that there is an a priori idea of a highest being which rests on a very different use of reason. It's practical use, I'm quoting, which drives us to amplify physical teleologies to the concept of a deity. So that's what the third critique says. We have a practical concept of reason and that's how we make the link. Um, In the first critique, rather, Kant argues that if we ask whether there is anything different from the world which contains the ground of the world order and its connection according to universal laws, then the answer is without a doubt. So you can really see the shift in perspective and how much more critical Kant is in the third critique in this assumption of physical theology than he is in the first critique. So it's clear, it's uh, obvious here that there is a kind of tension and that's the tension that brings Kant to constantly oscillate between the kind of imperative to avoid all arbitrariness on the part of reason and to keep a firm link with what is grounded in the categories of the understanding. And on the other hand, there's an equally strong imperative, again in the first critique, and which has been much less noted than this first, um, first one, which is to basically pursue a reason's <coughs> autonomous drive to recognize the validity of its own ideas, without which all systematic presupposition would collapse. But this leads us straight to what Kant is often warning about, which is reason's unavoidable tendency to always look for that which overcomes its limits. So reason, on the one hand, can recognize its own limits, and in doing so it can recognize the drive to step beyond the limit. But on the other hand, it has a price, and the price is that if we ignore that drive and if we ignore the Idea that reason is limited in its use by the validity of the concepts of the understanding and by the way in which the territory of experience needs to be circumscribed. The problem is that we kind of have both a fatalistic determinism and the position of a God ruler of the world. And so, if we step beyond the limits, that's what we end up with. That's what it entails to presuppose the idea of a necessary highest being. So on the one hand Kant is aware of this danger that if we come up with the idea of God as justified from the observation of the teleology of nature then we are basically in some ways denying free will and posing a concept that should only come at the end of empirical inquiry as this is another point On the other hand, the systematic presupposition of the necessity of the systematic presuppositions that I've been talking about also contains a kind of immediate passage to the necessity of positing a ground for its cause. So Kant's reasoning is, if the order and harmony of thought must reflect the order and harmony of the universe, how could we explain the perception of structures that display a conformity to ends for us, but have no end as such? So, in a way, the coherence of the use of our reason, the coherence of the hypothetical use of reason, requires a coherent structure of the universe, but then assuming a coherent structure of the universe requires an intelligent being that is at the basis of that structure. And so, as Kant puts it, basically, this can only ultimately be explained with reference to the idea of be- of a being which is understood as self-sufficient reason, which is the cause of the world through ideas of the greatest harmony and unity. So Kant doesn't explain in any great detail what um, drives reason to want to find a point of transition from physical teleology, so from the idea of conformity of ends to nature, to physical theology, to the justification of the rational idea of God, from the purposiveness of nature to the idea of the highest being. On the one hand, it's clearly difficult, given what the first critique has done up to the dialectic, to affirm that there is a link between the two. But it's equally hard to deny the possibility of this transition. And Kant struggles to find a stable perspective from which to develop a coherent answer to this problem. Now, there are several reasons for why Kant struggles to come up with a coherent perspective. So firstly, There is a problem with the status of ideas, which I haven't really explained in too much detail, but basically is that the status of ideas is um, not just theoretical, but also connected to some kind of practical demand or practical need of reason. Remember what Kant referred to earlier when he talked about the rights of reasons needs. Secondly, there is a problem of having failed to develop a deduction of a specific principle of purposiveness. Remember that the deduction, the justification of the principle of purposiveness is connected to the justification of the ideas of reason. There is no principle as such that is kind of standing alone independently from the ideas of reason. And finally... There is the problem of the demand for architectonic unity, which requires a concept of the idea of a highest understanding and will. And yet Kant doesn't explain. At some point he talks about the concept of schema, and I don't go into too much detail in this paper on all all that is um, required to then explain the use of the concept of schema. But basically um, he doesn't really explain how this is supposed to operate within the limits of human faculties. So I think the difficulties that I've tried to um, highlight are even greater if we think about the dialectic of human reason and something that Kant discusses in pages previous to the appendix to the transcendental dialectic, which was the justification of physical theology and where he actually engages with the traditional metaphysics on the different proofs for the uh, existence of God and the physical physical theological proof of the existence of God is one of them. So, on the one hand, from a merely speculative perspective, the final aim of the natural dialectic of human reason consists in directing all of its cognitions towards a systematic unitary point, conceived of as a unity, that is, oriented towards ends. Reason, however, this is something that Kant explains in talking about the dialectic, is not authorized to infer from the subjective presupposition of this concept an objective proof of its existence. And yet this is exactly what the physical theological proof for the existence of God tries to accomplish. Now Kant never hides the preference for this proof as opposed to the other proofs of traditional metaphysics and the other arguments in favor of the existence of God. So he claims when he talks about the proof that uh, the argument is accessible even to the most common human reason. And the reason that is so accessible is that it rests on empirical grounds. In other words, we observe the order and unity of nature and we can then think about an author that has um, designed this order and unity. So it's basically, Kant says, popular and appealing where the other, the alternative proofs for the existence of God, the cosmological and the ontological proof, are dry and abstract. But even though Kant argues that the physical theological proof always deserves to be named with respect, When the critique turns to the question of whether the argument is a valid one, his approval is more ambiguous. And that's because, Kant says, even if the proof follows the path of experience for most of the argumentative process, it then tends to abandon it in favor of the notion of a necessary being. So remember that the analysis starts by assuming the existence of such a being only hypothetically and as a way of strengthening our analysis of contingent manifestations of experiences but then the proof eventually claims to do more than that it claims to come up with the concept of absolute necessity of a first cause and in this way the physical theological proof ends up providing a definition of the predicates of what was supposed to remain abstract and indeterminate from a theoretical perspective so reason fills the gap and in a way steps the boundaries that it's prescribed to itself so reason ventures into a territory that she's actually not allowed to venture into. So this version of purposiveness, where reason oversteps the boundaries, was actually uh, criticized by Kant and is also criticized later by Hegel, and admires the end of natures wherever they appear with some plausibility. It was actually celebrated by many of the contemporaries of Kant. And that discussion of traditional metaphysics is what is at the background of Kant's discussion of physical theology in these passages. Uh, By the time of Kant's writing, the identification of the idea of purposefulness with the idea of usefulness had reduced the important metaphysical idea of theodicy, as Leibniz had conceived it, to a pedantic and trivial academic exercise which basically tried to identify in every aspect of the cosmic order the benefit to humans and therefore proofs of the wisdom of God in interfering in it. And so although Kant was attracted to the physical theological proof of the existence of God to begin with, he was completely aware of this. And he was also aware of someone like Voltaire, who had criticized this traditional metaphysical way of thinking by saying, for example, by uh, mocking the traditional metaphysicists when they when he says, well, why do we have noses? And then he said, well, surely so that we can wear glasses. And that was the kind of joke that Voltaire was making to mock this idea of connection between purposiveness in nature and the idea of a highest intelligence at its base. So basically Kant says, and this he says already in an earlier essay on um, the only possible ground in support of the um, demonstration of the existence of God, although the physical theological method should be commended for linking the idea of a benevolent legislator to the observation of purposiveness in nature, it's not immune from problems. Because even if natural causes harmonize with the wise cho- choice, it doesn't follow that it has been especially instituted by an artificial provision. And this is because every harmony that was once considered contingent and is subsequently linked to the universal laws of experience exposes physical theology concepts to dangerous objections, rendering its validity even more restricted. So, basically, uh, what we find here is uh, the question that is emphasized in the critique of pure reason in relation to the idea of ascribing constitutive validity to the idea of a supreme being. And it's the problem of what Cicero already used to refer to by the term of ignavaratio, or lazy reasoning, which basically Kant thought, if we assume and if we presuppose the validity of physical theology and we assume the existence of an intelligent author at the basis of the order of nature, this brings reason, Kant says, to neglect all ends internal to life, considering its search already concluded when traces of such intelligent design claim to have been identified. So lazy reason is the one that prefers to be exonerated from the investigation of whether natural effects might be produced by natural causes. And that's where the problem of assuming validity of physical theology lies. Now, <clears throat> In the Critique of Pure Reason, Kant's this mistake of kind of lazy reasoning is avoided by suggesting to consider from the point of view of purposes not just a few parts of nature, but the universal link between the systematic unity of nature and the idea of a highest intelligence. So this means that in the first critique, purposiveness in accordance with the universal laws of nature becomes the ground from which no particular arrangement is accepted but arrangements are designated only in a way that is more or less discernible by us. So then, Kant argues, we will have a regulative principle of the systematic unity of a teleological connection, Uh, but it's a principle which we do not determine beforehand, but may only expect while pursuing the physical-mechanical connection according to universal law. So Kant says this is compatible with pursuing mechanical investigation. So from the regulative use of the ideas of reason, we are taken to the transcendental principle of systematicity in nature. And from the transcendental principle of systematicity of nature, we're taken to a critical version of Leibnizian theodicy. So just to wrap up, um, what I try to do in this paper is to show that Kant's oscillations concerning the transcendental um, deduction of ideas reflects a difficult relation between the logical and the transcendental principle for the systematic unity of nature, which is at the heart of the appendix. And this is a problem that I suggest the appendix continues to problematize without ever being able to solve. And I suggest that the source of the problem, and this is not something that has been theorized by those who read the appendix in connection to the critique of judgment is actually the relationship between teleology on the one hand and physical theology on the other. So the idea of purposiveness as necessary for the hypothetical use of reason, or what will later become the reflective use of the principle of judgment, and the assumption of an intelligent designer of the world. So it seems to me that although Kant's thoughts on this matter in the first critique have clearly significantly evolved from the time of his pre-critical writings, the evolution is not as stark as one might initially be inclined to think. The reasons for the difficulty are basically in the ambiguous status of transcendental ideas, a status which seems to continue oscillating between the mere hypothetical acceptance of the validity of ideas on the one hand, which requires some kind of faith in an unspecified supreme being schematized through the ideas of reason, and the necessity of this faith coupled with the need to recognize it as more than a mere being in thought. And Again, this goes back to the rights of reason's need. This is what reason demands, and this is what reason needs, and that's how it grounds the presupposition that it needs. Now, the nature of the need is grounded in an interest of reason, which is clearly difficult to reduce to an interest of a purely speculative nature, although speculative interests also play a role, and has an important practical dimension. But how the realm of the practical is supposed to work in the appendix, we are never clearly told, and it's not easy to infer on the basis of anything that Kant says before that in the first critique. And so we don't really solve the problem of the appendix, but at least what we do is by recognizing that these passages are self-contradictory is to explain the rationale for the contradiction. So we don't just get rid of these passages as many authors have done to say, well, Kant is clearly, he doesn't really know what he's talking about when he says there is a deduction and then uh, there is, there can be no deduction and then there is a deduction, he's just being inconsistent. In fact, we can see that there is an inconsistency that is due to the fact that the relationship between theoretical and practical reason in the first critique is not at all worked out. And to the extent that it's not worked out, the relationship between teleology and physical theology is not worked out in the way in which it is worked out later in the third critique. So I started, as I said, by uh, describing the kind of puzzle about the transcendental deduction of ideas. And I started also with an attempt to question, to interrogate some of the most common interpretation of these passages. And as I said, I didn't want to completely side with authors who just emphasize that these pages have a self-contradictory nature, but I also try to illustrate the weakness of other readings who say that there is no problem here whatsoever, that um, Kant is being consistent through and through. So my interpretation is grounded on an effort to show the relevance of transcendental theology for Kant's attempts to defend the unity of reason and to show that the demand for unity is both theoretical and practical, but to complete the transition from one domain to the other, Kant needs a transcendental principle of purposiveness, which is very different from the one that is available in the first critique. And it's a kind of principle of purposiveness whose status must be very clearly distinguished from purposiveness as design like the one that is being, in fact, entangled in the first critique. So Kant, to deliver on the promise of a deduction, what he needs is to link natural purposiveness to physical theology, and that's what he actually does effectively in the first critique. But to admit to the necessity and the fundamental relevance of physical theology for the um, pages, for the project of the unifying attempts of reason in the appendix is basically to shake the whole critical enterprise because of the uh, reasons that I mentioned earlier, because of the kinds of cautions that Kant presents us when he talks about physical theology and why the proof is never fully persuasive. And so even though Kant doesn't mention physical theology in the pages of the appendix, I suggest that if we connect his remarks to the lectures on the philosophy of religion or to other minor writings written about the same before and after the first critique, we can see how the issue of physical theology and the engagement with traditional metaphysics and the relationship in which uh, traditional metaphysicians like Wolf and Leibniz thought about the order of nature in connection to the idea of God is constantly in the background of the relationship between the systematic unity of nature on the one hand and the idea of a supreme intelligence of the universe. And so, And I think this engagement with traditional metaphysics is precisely the reminder in the first critique that the only concept of purposiveness that Kant has available at this point is the concept of purposiveness as design. And I think this is also one of the most important and most often neglected elements that mark a difference between the use of the concept of purposiveness in the first critique and the use of the concept of purposiveness as grounds for reflective judgment in the third. As I try to explain, the third critique has a much clearer conception of purposiveness as normativity because it's clearly rooted to a conception of practical reason where the constitutive practical nature of ideas is unambiguous and where the practical use of reason is much more sharply distinguished from the speculative use of reason than it is in the first critique. So even though the first critique gives us some vague indications concerning the practical demands and needs of reason, it doesn't show us a clear path on how to respond to these needs. And this failed attempt to provide a persuasive transcendental deduction of ideas deserves, I think, much more scrutiny than it has been given so far. I think it's one of the most interesting angles from which to explore the path that the first critique doesn't take. And it's also one of the most interesting angles from which to shed light on what needs to be there for the unifying teleological project of reason to actually succeed. But as I try to suggest, it's not an unproblematic attempt, and it's not also not one that we can brush off by simply invoking Kant's account of practical reason, as many authors have recently tried to do. So I'll stop there. thank you.